This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. Our narrative of the encounter between Europeans and indigenous Americans in the late 15th and 16th centuries has generally been written from the point of view of the former discovering the latter. That in 1492 and thereafter, it was Columbus and those who followed him who were the ones finding a strange and savage new world. But what if we were to turn this on its head What if we looked at the encounter from the indigenous point of view? What if we thought about the thousands of Native American people who travelled to Europe from the 1490s, either of their own volition or under compulsion, as those enslaved and kidnapped by Europeans? Arguably, it was they who were arriving in a strange and savage new world. It is today's guest who has proposed this new perspective and who has done the hard graft of following the stories of many of these indigenous travellers. She is Dr. Caroline Dodds-Pennock, Senior Lecturer in International History at the University of Sheffield. She's been a guest on the podcast before, speaking to me about Aztec society. Today we're going to be discussing her important new book, On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe. It's a story you need to hear. Caroline, Dr. Dodds Pedock, I am absolutely delighted to welcome you back to Not Just the Tudors. It was such a pleasure to talk to you last time. And I am absolutely delighted to talk to you about your groundbreaking, very important new book on Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe. There is so much to ask you about this book. But thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on again. It's really nice to talk to you. I suppose we really ought to start our discussion by thinking about the doctrine of discovery, the legal fiction that underpinned the relationship between European peoples and indigenous peoples in America. Can you explain this and its impact and something of its legacy? The doctrine of discovery is really a legal fiction 
by which Europeans claim the right to territories in the Americas and actually all across the world by saying they were the first to find these places. And of course, it's nonsensical because there are people there already. The mere idea of discovering somewhere that millions of people are living, when you think about it, is totally ludicrous. It's like me coming around and discovering your house. It doesn't make any sense at all. But it becomes a very powerful legal fiction that is then written into US law, actually, and used in the 19th and even in the 20th century to justify ongoing ownership of land by Europeans. It comes, in the first instance, though, from papal bulls that are granted first to the Portuguese and then to the Spanish, saying that they have the rights to the territories in Africa, in the case of the Portuguese, and the Americas, in the case of the Spanish initially, on condition they evangelise these lands. And this becomes really important in the way that Spanish and Portuguese frame their encounter because it becomes very important for them to say, these are people who are capable of evangelization. They have welcomed us. There's a lot of, they allied with us in the sources that probably isn't true. And it's all about showing that these are people who can be evangelized and therefore legitimizing Spanish or Portuguese presence in these lands. And that is really the beginning of these ideas around doctrine of discovery. You can go back further if you want to do legal histories, of course, but in terms of the most powerful imperial tools, these papal bulls then confirmed in the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1493, when the Spanish and Portuguese sit down and essentially divide the world up between them, the Portuguese to the east, the Spanish to the west. They chop off Brazil, which they don't know about at that moment, which is why the Portuguese end up with Brazil. And it's declaration of European power that has had a very long legacy. And of course, then other powers like the Dutch and the British, who have less of an evangelising mission, also get entangled with the idea of discovery. And you may have heard of this idea that indigenous peoples, they're not actively using the land and therefore it can be discovered. And of course, that all comes down to European preconceptions about what it means to to own land, to hold land, to use land. There's a very long and fascinating legal history that a lot of Indigenous scholars have written a lot about that takes us right up into what's going on in the 21st century around Indigenous tribal claims to land in the United States. Really astonishing how long the legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery is. Can we pick up on the relationship between Christianity and colonialism? You describe in your book at one point the altarpiece in the House of Trade in Sevilla, the Virgin of the Navigators. And it's a pretty good image for thinking about the sort of problematic role that Christianity has in the Americas. Can you perhaps describe that and certainly tell us a bit about this relationship between faith and power? Yes, it's really deeply rooted, this idea of papal legitimacy and the need to evangelise as being right at the beginnings of colonisation for the Catholic powers, at least. And the Virgin of the Navigators is an amazing image that you can still go and see in Seville that shows the Virgin Mary hovering above clouds and below her are important navigators and officials and rulers, all very richly dressed. Below them are really interesting, detailed little examples of the different kinds of ships that were being used in the exploration that the Spanish were doing on an ocean. When you look more closely, though, Mary has her cape open or a cloak and under the cloak are what would have been seen as the faithful indigenous people dressed in white clothing. They're seen as neophytes, people coming to the faith. And one of the fascinating things for me about the picture 
is that there was an indigenous person we know working in the workshop of the artist. So he would have seen indigenous people in Europe. There's real tangible connections. He's not just making them up. But what this image shows is the way in which you have the glorious explorers and kings and navigators at the front. They are the ones pushing forward exploration, taking all the glory, and behind them are these innocents as they're seen. You get this amazing disjuncture in the way that people view indigenous peoples. They are either these evil, cannibalistic, terrifying figures, or they are childlike innocents who need to be guided to God, who simply don't have the knowledge of the faith. And you see this tension really play out even in legal cases where people are appealing for their freedom. Bartolome de las Casas, who is one of the most famous defenders of the Indians, that's his official title, he is famous for supporting indigenous rights also for introducing African slavery to the Americas, which complicates his legacy an awful lot. But he is also famous for writing very strong tracts in support of indigenous rights. He would go into court, even in Spain, in support of enslaved people trying to get their freedom and talk about them as childlike neophytes who are clearly indigenous people from the Americas who need to be saved, liberated. It's in this tension that we get the difference, I think, between Spanish and British exploration in the Americas. The Spanish have to regard these people as potential converts or the justification for them being their collapses. That doesn't mean they don't find excuses and exceptions and reasons to enslave and brutalise people. It does mean that in law and in policy, they have to treat these as Christians, as fully human people. Even the Pope declares that indigenous people in the 1530s are fully human and cannot be enslaved under any circumstances, is what he says. Takes another nearly 10 years to get that into law. It's only really partially implemented, that law. But nonetheless, in principle, indigenous people are not supposed to be enslaved. You don't have anything like that in what became the United States, the British and the Dutch territories, where it is much more commercial in terms of the legal framing that people are taking, much more commercial and political. Which doesn't mean that indigenous people aren't treated in similar ways often, or that there are no evangelising people in the United States. Of course there are. We have all these famous residential schools, which are often run by missionaries. Those impulses are similar, but it's in the legal framing and the way that the crowns treat this, I think, that you see that distinction. And this book is crucially not just about Europeans in the Americas. It's very much about people indigenous to the Americas in Europe who are present there from the early 1490s. Why, apart from some very good scholarship that you are very good at quoting and generous in your credits, why have they previously been dismissed as insignificant oddities? We've started our conversation, haven't we, with Europeans? And I think that's just where the conversation often starts. So for a long time, I started to wonder why we heard so much about white people going west and so little about indigenous people coming the other way. And so I started just looking out for them. And the more I looked, the more there were people to find. And as you say, I'm not the first person to notice a lot of these people. There has been work about them before, but they just haven't seemed to have made an impact on the popular understanding of this period. So it's a period people think they know really well. Henry VIII, for example, something you know a lot about, people think they know the Tudor period pretty well. British Tudor history. But how many people know there was what they called a Brazilian king at the court of Henry VIII? 
very few. I did not know that. And I know quite a lot about 1531. So I was amazed when I read this. <laughs> and that's amazing that even you didn't know about that, that it just hadn't registered. And I think it is because, as you say, they've often been seen as exceptions rather than the rule. Oddities, curiosities, they're frequently written about when they do appear in bigger books or more popular books as kind of a side note, a colourful picture. Oh, did you know this is also happening? Where, in fact, there are tens of thousands of people coming to Europe, not to Britain. It's smaller numbers to Britain, it should be said, in this early period, which is what my book focuses on more later. But in this early period, it's tens of thousands coming to Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands, some to Britain. And I think we need to start shifting the perspective to understand this as a reciprocal exchange, something where people are moving both ways, albeit often coerced coming to Europe, rather than as something that Europeans are doing. I really think that the reason most people don't realise that there are Indigenous people in Europe is just nobody's ever told them. It just hasn't been in these popular pictures. It's much like histories of Black Britain or Black Europe, where people like Olivet Tortele, David Olasoga, lots of other people, they've started to shift the way that we see Europe and Britain in terms of recognising the African an African descended presence in those places. And I think we just need to do the same kind of work for indigenous histories. It's harder in some ways because their legacy as people is less obvious than the black diaspora is, but that doesn't mean they weren't there and aren't there. When we look a bit harder, I think the cultural legacy is vast. So I really think it is just that people hadn't seen them as a regular occurrence. People saw them as exceptions and also just a tendency to focus on what Europeans are doing in the history. Colonisation tends to be seen as something done by Europeans. And it's not that Indigenous people aren't active as respondents, participants, victims, many different things, but it tends to be seen as happening in the colonies rather than at the metropole. Before we get into some of the stories, could we talk a little bit about sources? Because one of the problems that you raise is that we are often relying on European ventriloquists, that we are getting native voices filtered. And there are a couple of places where I was intrigued about your work with sources. For example, when you talk about Taino people being baptised in the presence of the Spanish monarchs, you quote a source saying that, that of their own will and counsel they asked to be baptised, but refer to it later as a forcible baptism. And so I was thinking about how we handle questions of agency and consent when we're dealing with these sources. And then somewhere else, you recount a fictionalised conversation noted down in 1703 that some native scholars have embraced, in which we've got the Wainodot chief of the Turtle Clan critiquing the values of European society. And you say that we've got every reason to believe the dialogues could be genuine whilst also telling us it's fictionalised. And so I was thinking about how do we square this tension between what we want a source to say in some cases, the historical method, modern Indigenous perspectives, and this question of the absence of the voice of the people that you want to find. It's really difficult. I'm not sure we can square that circle. So as you say, the trouble with studying early indigenous travellers to Europe is that almost all the sources we have are either by people who saw them or kidnapped them or took them. And you mentioned this question of consent and you have to be so alert in the sources to this issue of consent because sometimes people are quite obviously enslaved. They are legally holding the status of slave in the record. But then there are lots of other people who it says things like they were taken or brought 
obtained, all those kinds of words. And that, of course, does not speak to consent, which at the same time, though, doesn't mean that those people may not have been exploiting that opportunity, may not have made the best of a situation, taken advantage of it, used it to the benefit of their people in some cases. But it does not speak to consent. And those many layers of consent are really difficult to disentangle. And sometimes, of course, they may just be a function of the source and the word choice of a European who saw them somewhere. Oh, here were some people who were brought to Spain. And we don't actually know whether they chose to travel, asked to travel or were kidnapped and brought to Europe. Sometimes that is clear where those people lie. And so very often you are working with sources that don't do any of the things you want them to do. They fail to identify people with names that you can trace. You see a little fragment of someone's life and you can't follow up on what happened before or after. You are left trying to piece together these fragments in a sensitive way. And sometimes that means using later sources where we do in fact have the voices of Indigenous people to try and contextualise this material and give a sense of what they may have thought or felt. Sometimes it means using recorded oral histories where we do have a little hint at Indigenous people's reception of travellers' tales, for example, and how they were understanding what was going on. We do have legal records where very often where Indigenous people are either appealing for their freedom or appealing for rights and privileges for their noble families. So it's at the two opposite ends of the spectrum. You have enslaved people telling their stories, of course, in a formalised, very specifically tailored way in order to obtain their freedom or to try and obtain their freedom. And then at the other end, noble families who are submitting appeals, trying to get benefits for their cities or for themselves or their families. And there we have their voices, but within the constraints of the legal format, which again means it's not just like hearing someone speak. And all you can do is to take these tiny little pieces and try and put them together in a coherent way and to hope that they tell a story that foregrounds Indigenous voices without speaking for them, because I don't want to ventriloquise Indigenous people either. I want to try and let them speak for themselves. And that means acknowledging when I'm not sure. When we think that something is a possibility, we perhaps, in the case of the Taino chiefs, we know about how they would have felt about some of the objects that were being presented at court when they were baptised. And that allows us to tell that story differently by seeing how they may have seen the environment in which they were being baptised. There are these little guises, these masks that were for them a symbol of kinship, of power, of bonds between equals. Maybe that would have played into their understanding of the environment in which it was happening. We just don't know. And I'm trying to be really upfront about that by telling the story in the introduction of the first people from Mexico to come to Spain, the Totonac chiefs. So there are a group of people who Cortes says, or at least his chroniclers say, were rescued from human sacrifice. But the records of them at court say that they were Totonac ambassadors. And so what I try and do in the introduction is to show the uncertainties around that and how we know what we know and what we don't know. And I think that's all I can do is to say, I know some things, I can speculate about other things, and there are lots of things I do not know. Can we talk about slavery? Because the story starts, I suppose, with Columbus's kidnapping of native men and women and children in 1492. And then, as we'll see, it moves into an extraordinary amount of Indigenous enslavement, despite the fact it becomes technically illegal. Let's start with the story in 1492 and what happened there, and we'll go from there. 
So when Columbus lands in the Caribbean, one of the first things he does is to kidnap some indigenous people. And when he returns to Spain for the first time to trumpet his great discovery, he brings indigenous men and women with him. We don't know exactly how many people survived the voyage, fewer than 10, but we do know that many died on the voyage. And this is a recurring theme in the history of this period is that indigenous people confronted with diseases that they have no natural immunity to die in very large numbers. The story of high death rates from epidemic disease happens in Europe as well as in the Americas. This is something we're seeing among many travellers, how many die. So Columbus brings several people with him and they are a subject of great fascination as he's taking them to court. People see them, observe them, are excited by them. And then he presents them at court and they are baptised and given the names of the members of the royal family as their godparents. And one of the men becomes Columbus. He's often talked about as a kind of adopted son and becomes a translator for Columbus for a long time. One of the men goes to live at court and he lives a couple of years, it seems, at court before dying. Definitely learns Spanish, becomes integrated there and others are taken back to the Americas. And it's very hard to tell exactly who those people are or the extent to which they consent in coming to Europe. It does seem that some of them may be high status children of Taino chiefs and therefore perhaps they have agreed to go in a kind of ambassadorial role. We don't know. The fact that they are high status lords of people that Columbus meets, talks to, is allied with in his view, suggests that maybe some of these people travel consensually. But he very definitely is a man who is interested primarily in taking Indigenous people to become translators. So very often he immediately kidnaps people everywhere and other Europeans do this afterwards. It's a pattern that you see that you take Indigenous people, you try and make them into translators for you. He wants to show these people off as curiosities. This is another big theme, this idea that people are the subject of the European gaze, that they want to see them, understand them as part of science and as part of entertainment as well. So he wants to bring people to show them off. And then the third is slavery, which is, as you say, a very prominent theme in the book. It's the one I start with. And there's a reason for that. And that's because the majority of people who come to Europe are, in fact, brought as slaves. They are enslaved. And when I say that, I mean, they hold the legal status of slave when they are brought to Europe. Andres Resendez has a wonderful book called The Other Slavery, in which he estimates that up to a million indigenous people are enslaved before 1600. Most don't come to Europe, but large numbers do. January on Gone Medieval is all about mysteries, the impossible riddles of medieval history that defy efforts to solve them. How did the presence of a mysterious saviour from the East turn into devastation? There were also tidings that Prester John was on the march. What secrets does a book written in an unknown code hide? Linguists have worked on it. Code breakers, especially after World War II, were very interested in seeing if they could break the code. But so far, nobody has, as far as we know, even come close. Did kings and princes really die when history is assumed they did? Our liege lord, Edward of Carnarvon, meaning Edward II, is alive and in good physical health and in a safe place. I'm Matt Lewis, and all through January, we'll see how close we can get to answering the unanswerable and ask how these mysteries might be solved in the future. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. I was astonished at the scale of this and also at my ignorance of it. And I wonder why we haven't known it. And I also would like you to explain how, in theory, Indigenous people could not be enslaved, and yet we have a million people who are. What's this gap between the kind of debate about the legal nature of enslavement and the reality? Some of this lies simply in violence. You can have a crown saying you may not enslave people, and yet conquistadors, colonisers, simply taking people and enslaving them and doing that illegally. The Portuguese, especially in the early period, don't have laws against indigenous enslavement. And the Spanish only recognise the freedom of indigenous people from within their own territories. So you see a lot of claiming, oh, they were enslaved in a Portuguese territory and therefore they're legally held enslaved. It's all about getting around the law. But even the Spanish, up to 1542, have three exceptions to the law. You can become an enslaved person. The most common one is if you're captured in a just war. And this is one of the reasons that the Spanish are so keen to go around claiming that people became their allies or their vassals, because then, harking back to where we started, if you fight against the rule that you have already accepted, you are a rebel and can be enslaved in a just war, where if you're simply defending your territory, that is not considered just war. So a lot of people they claim are enslaved in a just war, you can be enslaved if you are a cannibal. 
And the third is a concept called rescate, which means rescue, where you can save someone into slavery from a worse fate, which is normally either that they were going to become a sacrificial victim or that they were already enslaved to indigenous people. And that must be worse than being enslaved to Europeans, obviously. So you have these exceptions that are then deployed to justify large-scale enslavement. They do bring in various laws about not being able to enslave children, not being able to enslave women under a certain age, things like that over the period. But it's only in 1542 with what are called the new laws that theoretically all enslavement of indigenous people is banned. What happens though, unfortunately, is that those laws, this is interesting for me, in Spain, those laws are implemented immediately. The Crown puts in place an inspector called Gregorio Lopez, who goes round and is supposed to check whether people are being legally held in slavery and help them appeal for their freedom if they're not. He helps maybe a hundred people successfully appeal for their freedom in Seville and places around there. But in Mexico, they suspend the laws because in Peru, one of the parts of the law is that it abolishes encomienda, the idea of entrustment. This is another form of slavery by another name, where you entrust indigenous people to a Spaniard and they're supposed to evangelise them and look after them in exchange for tribute and labour. It's another form of forced labour. These new laws also abolish encomienda and people are very upset about it. In Peru, they decapitate the governor and there's a rebellion. And so the Mexican governor looks at what's happening in Peru and says, oh, I don't think we want to do that. So he suspends the laws and they aren't implemented right away. They're brought back in in a watered down form in 1552. And then you start to see similar moves in the Americas. But what's interesting is that the closer to the centre of power you are, the more likely these laws are to be taken seriously. It does depend which ruler you've got in charge as well. So Isabella famously seemed to care about indigenous people obviously in a very paternalistic we should be in charge of them kind of way but nonetheless she was the one that said about Columbus who is this man who keeps enslaving my vassals and making him free people and the minute she dies Ferdinand goes around declaring more islands free for enslaving and then Charles again seems very concerned about his soul and so he takes very seriously the idea that you should be only practising just war. In 1550 to 1551, he even suspends all further conquests while what are called the Valladolid debates go on, while people try and decide whether indigenous peoples have the rights in their territories or they can be enslaved. And Las Casas, who we talked about, is one of the most prominent participants in those debates. So it is really interesting... What the Spanish are doing is undoubtedly brutal colonisation. It uproots communities, it devastates families and individuals. But I think it would be wrong to assume that these laws are window dressing for violence. It does seem that Spanish rulers genuinely are concerned because of the religious angle to ensure that these things are happening legitimately and with restraint, I think is the way that they talk about it. And of course, in reality, that very often doesn't play out like that. But in Spain, close to the centre of power, and especially for people who have access to European power, so people who either manage to get lawyers or who have patrons or who are themselves noble, they do seem to be able to deploy these rights quite effectively in some cases. Yes, you give several examples of indigenous peoples who, having been enslaved and taken to Spain, went on to negotiate their freedom. Could you tell us one story? 
One of the most interesting, I think, is the case of Isabel, who is married to a man called Pedro de Oropesa. And one of the most interesting things about her is that although it seems she was enslaved, she had been declared free. And she comes to Spain, she believes, as his kind of legitimate partner, not as a wife. The sources use the word concubine. I'm hesitating to use that because it implies a particular kind of relationship. But just as a partner, she supposedly rode on a cushion and wore gold and was treated as his partner. They had two children together, Lorenzo and Gaspar. And it seemed that she was living quite a comfortable life in Spain. And then for some reason, Pedro marries another woman who is unhelpfully also called Isabel and then dies. And the new wife, Isabel, tries to set about getting the indigenous partner declared enslaved because Pedro has willed quite a bit to his mestizo, his mixed heritage sons. They fight this in the courts. And in 1570, Isabel and her children are declared free. The sons, Lorenzo and Gaspar, are very angry at being called racial insults and so on. And they fight very effectively in the courts for their freedom. And what the story shows, the reason I pick it is that it shows really the precarity of indigenous people and their relationships. Very often, even if they've come as dependents rather than formerly enslaved people, if a partner dies, if they lose their certificates of freedom, if circumstances change, then they can very quickly go from relative comfort to absolute poverty and oppression. We have several cases of Indigenous people who say that they knew they could appeal for their freedom after 1542, but they didn't bother to do so until their circumstances changed. So if someone tries to sell them to a new master and they don't want to do that, or the children try and be given away, and at that point they say, OK, I'm going to appeal for my freedom. In quite a few cases, these people carry on working in the homes of the people they were enslaved to. There isn't really a case here of people who live in absolute poverty or at the bottom rung. The legal status matters, but also you could just be there as a servant and you're still subject to sexual violence and actual violence and being uprooted. We're back to this question of consent. Just because you have the legal status as a freedom doesn't necessarily give you autonomy in terms of your decision making. And sometimes people who are enslaved do demonstrate that they're able to exert autonomy. It's a very grey area. You mentioned early on that many of the people who were enslaved originally were taken in order to be go-betweens, to be interpreters. And I was really struck by the story of two men who worked with Thomas Harriet on the Algonquin alphabet because it shows us differing Indigenous responses to that role. Can you say a bit about that, please? Yes, so we have this famous, supposedly, story of Thomas Harriet, who, so the story goes, invents the first alphabetic Algonquin alphabet. In reality, though, he's working alongside to Indigenous people, possibly three Indigenous people, who have been brought from the area around Roanoke and Croatan. And these men are called Manteo and Wanchese. And Manteo, it seems, collaborates really actively with Harriet, because there's a document that Cole Thrush published first, which is the record of the Osomokamuk alphabet that Harriet is so famous for supposedly producing. And it's got Manteo's signature on the document. It says King Manteo did this. And it's just so incredible to see that physical trace of Indigenous presence in Europe and of Indigenous presence in this story that is so often centred on Europeans. They go back with 
the next expedition organised by Raleigh to the eastern coast of the United States and Manteo remains allied with the British for a long time. They even give him a gun at one point, which is a real symbol that he's been accepted as part of their community because they normally keep guns away from the indigenous peoples. On the other hand, the minute that they land back in his home territory disappears immediately and it seems starts fomenting discontent against the English and trying to get the local rulers to act against the British. It's very hard to tell exactly what he does because of the sources, but it really does seem like these two men have had a very different reaction to being in London. They are treated pretty well, it seems. Raleigh takes them to court, as far as I can tell. It's not quite clear whether Elizabeth ever actually saw them, but they were definitely seen at court, so it seems unlikely she wouldn't have they're well-dressed, they're looked after, but Wanchese clearly does not want this. He's not having any of it. He sees perhaps the potential of the numbers of people in London, of their technology. Maybe he just really dislikes it. Maybe he has a bad experience. Some people have speculated that Manteo is treated as more important than Wanchese and therefore he feels disgruntled, but I haven't found any actual evidence for that. Certainly he reacts very differently, where Manteo remains allied with the English. Wanchese goes straight back to his people at the first opportunity. And these are two of the earliest Algonquin-speaking people that we have in London. But this is a group of people because of the territory where you see quite a lot of Indigenous peoples who are present in London come from that group. And I suppose being an interpreter could shade into being an ambassador or being a diplomat. And you have quite a number of examples of Indigenous ambassadors. I mean, you mentioned the Brazilian king at the court of Henry VIII earlier. Can you tell me a little bit about this role and how it was carried out and the ways in which indigenous politicians like this shaped European society and the encounter with the Americas. It's really incredible that we don't think more about this. I should say that some people have published on this. There are accounts of indigenous ambassadors coming to Europe. It's not unknown. Again, I think it's seen as an exception. Now, the Brazilian king, it seems he came consensually. He wouldn't have called himself a king, but we don't know what he called himself. We know he negotiated that a hostage be left in exchange for his return. So it seems it was definitely a voluntary trip. By the time he met Henry VIII, he must have spoken some English, but we know very little about what happened, just that he stayed for a number of months and then he does die before he's able to return home. They do free the hostage, though. His community understand and they free the hostage. For this early period, what we have far more are records of travellers to the Spanish court. And there are huge numbers of noble travellers coming to Spain, trying to use the relationship to the crown to assert their power, to manage to maintain their privilege and their importance. One really great example is when Cortes returns to Spain for the first time after the defeat of the Aztec Mexica people, comes back in 1528 and he brings with him a huge entourage. And most of the historical accounts that have looked at Cortes's return have focused on the fact that he brings tumblers and jugglers and people who are seen as curiosities, people with congenital deformities, people with dwarfism, just incredible performers who amaze the court. Charles is so impressed by the musicians and the dancers that he sends them to the papal court to impress the Pope. And so you have this really fascinating little vignette of indigenous life. But what gets talked about less is the fact that there were a large number of indigenous nobles in this group with him. 
There may have been a woman, but the vast majority of them were men. And the ones that are recorded, the ones whose names we have, were all men. And they represent about five different cities who Cortes has either allied with or conquered. But when we say conquered, there are sons of Moctezuma amongst this group. And they are there because they say their father allied with Cortes. There's the famous story where he's kidnapped, right? But that's not how it's rewritten by indigenous peoples in the colonial period. They say, the people of Tenochtitlan say, our father allied with Cortes, you need to give us rewards. And actually, two sons of the Emperor Moctezuma, it appears, continue to reside at court for quite a number of years and get posts and grants and become members of the royal household. The crown gets quite irritated that they're spending so much money looking after them. So they say, we're going to put them to work in the royal household. They need to be doing something for us. Also in that group, though, are ambassadors of Tlaxcala, four cities that after colonisation came together to be recognised in the colonial period as one. These cities that did ally with Cortes, and they are the most effective from the very beginning at asserting their rights. They obtain coats of arms, they obtain exemptions from tribute, they obtain the right to call themselves the very loyal city of Tlaxcala in perpetuity, they're granted the right to be ruled directly by the crown so that they can't be subject to local control in Mexico. It's incredible how much they get and you have these expeditions going quite regularly after 1528. Tlaxcalans come to try and reconfirm their privileges. Other indigenous nobles come to ask for things for their churches. They come to ask for land grants to be confirmed. They come to ask for pensions. And the Crown would prefer this stuff happened in the colonies. But Spanish law says that once indigenous people arrive in Spain and appeal to the Crown, they are to be treated as wards of the Crown, people who have the right to Crown protection and to support. And this ends up in this position where the Crown is actually shelling out very large sums of money to support people like the children of the Inca in the manner to which they are supposedly accustomed because they're royalty, while at the same time recognising them as what are called poor indigenous people. And so you have this quite regular route across the Atlantic from all parts of the Spanish Empire of indigenous and mestizo people who are travelling to Europe asking for their rights to be either granted or confirmed. And these ambassadors also become influential in Spain because some of them come and live in Spain. One of the daughters of Pizarro and the last Inca is exiled to Spain, Francisca, because they think she might be too disruptive a force. People will be trying to marry her and become influential in Peru. So they exile her to Trujillo in Spain, where she and several of her relatives form a kind of group of Inca nobility in Spain. There's a thing called the Palace of the Conquest that her Spanish husband and also uncle, it's a bit creepy, builds with her. And her face is on that building along with her husband's. But people go and what they look at is the statue of Pizarro just around the corner. They don't go and look at the face of the Inca princess just nearby. And that's almost a metaphor for the entire way the story's been told. The signs are there, these people are there, but it's not what we're focusing on. It's not what we're talking about. One of the last stories in your book is, again, another moving story. And this time it's of Inuit people buried in St. Olaf's in London. And you contrast this with the famous diarist Samuel Pepys, who's also buried there as an example, just like the statue of Pizarro and the face of Donna Francisca, as a way of seeing the gap between these people and the problems of reaching these people. It also seems to me to speak to the difficulty you must have as a historian reading these countless stories of enslavement and rape and forcible separation 
from children and transportation. And so I wanted to end, if I may, by asking you about your experience of gathering this material and how you pushed on through it, really. That's a really difficult question. So I guess I started as a historian of human sacrifice, which does not dehumanise you, but you do get a lot of practice in reading very difficult texts. The book was very affected in the later writing periods by COVID. And so it was quite a strange experience sitting by yourself, attempting to access these things virtually and thinking about the devastation that disease and dislocation can exert on communities. So at a time when I'm writing about the beginnings of global connection, all these global connections are being challenged and broken down. That was quite strange. But what made a really big difference for me was being able to talk about this with Indigenous colleagues, Indigenous friends, and to even virtually benefit from Indigenous scholars communities, writers, in particular my friend Layla Blackbird, who as I co-authored a piece with Layla in What is History Now that you co-edited with Helen Carr. And in recent years my practice has been enormously shaped by thinking more about the impact of these stories and of this history on Indigenous people today, of the legacy of these histories and why that matters and why it's so important to listen to the descendants of these people. I was trained in Oxford in a kind of traditional way to work with alphabetic sources. You work with the texts, you draw stories out of the texts. And it wasn't that you didn't think it was important to tell Indigenous stories. It was just that nobody ever really talked to you about listening to Indigenous people now, listening to Indigenous scholars, listening to Indigenous communities, trying to understand why these histories really matter and continue to matter. And as a historian in Britain, I'm not going to pretend that I can work in an embedded way with an Indigenous community. I'm not doing that. And actually, many of the people whose stories I tell don't have living descendants. They don't have always identifiable descendant communities because of the extermination that follows invasion. And also that the book covers so many peoples, all the way from the Inuit down to the Tupi people, that you couldn't meaningfully work with one community about it. But what I have done is to try and read more widely, speak more widely, consult more widely, talk to Indigenous people. I listen to people. I've learned so much. Layla read every word of the book and she pointed out things that I would never have noticed. And so for me... I guess being able to do this feels like a real privilege, being able to learn more, hear more. I don't take lightly that I'm the person who's trying to bring these stories to a wider audience. And this is why for me it's so important to try and let people speak for themselves where they can to signpost Indigenous scholars or colleagues or authors to allow people to hear that wider conversation in a way that I've really benefited from. That was a beautifully sensitive answer, which is appropriate for the author of a beautifully sensitive book. It's a really important piece of work, and it's important in telling these stories to a wider audience, but also in the vast amount of research that you have done that shows up here. And also, I particularly want to thank you as a mother who also write slowly for in your acknowledgement saying of your daughter she, she is the one for whom you write and she is why you write so slowly so thank you for saying that too although I feel bad for blaming her because it is 15 years since my last soul authored book and she's only been there for eight of them so I can't completely blame her <laughs> I know I have thought about dedicating my 
next book to my child, for whom and despite whom I've written it. Anyway, (laughs) thank you so much for coming on today and talking about this. It's been a wonderful conversation. And thank you so much for talking about it in such a kind of detailed way and taking the time to really engage with the work. I really appreciate it. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. History is full of extraordinary people the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.